You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're talking with Dr. Ron Crutcher, president and professor of music at the University of Richmond and author of the new book, I Had No Idea You Were Black, Navigating Race on the Road to Leadership. Dr. Crutcher was founding co-chair of Liberal Education and America's Promise, also known as LEAP. He's also a former member of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, and his new book highlights his own journey as well as his principles for leading and being. Let's listen in as Tom and Dr. Crutcher discuss the influence of music, strong leadership, the role of the university, and much more. Dr. Ron Crutcher, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, congratulations on your new book. I look forward to diving into that. But uh, right at the top, uh, Dr. Crutcher, why the cello? How mm -hmm. did the cello enter your life? Well, uh, you know, it's it, as, as often the case, it was it was an unusual circumstance. So I, I actually, my first introduction to music was singing. I started singing in the church when I was six years old, the Baptist Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. And then um, I, my, my mother signed me up to take piano lessons when I was six as well. And so from the age of six until the age of 14, my primary musical experience revolved around singing in groups. I sang in a, in a small youth uh, gospel group. And then in the eighth grade, uh, I had an opportunity to go to summer school to learn how to play an instrument. Um, and when the band teacher told me, he, he gave us a, um, a, a hearing test and he said, you can play any instrument you wanted. I love the string instruments. I'd fallen in love with the strings, uh, hearing concerts by the Cincinnati Symphony. And to be honest, the reason I chose the cello had more to do with the fact that I was overweight at the time. And in my mind, if you played the violin, you stood up. Right. If you play the cello, you sit down. I'm being honest. <laughs> and that's how I mean, that's, you know, that's what went through my mind at the, at the time. Now, interestingly enough, um, the cello also represents my boy, my vocal range. I'm a, as I said, I was a singer uh, and I was a tenor, but I have a, I, I can also, I, I, you know, sing, sing the bass. And when I lived in Germany, uh, was, uh, one evening we were at my professor's home on the Amaze in outside of Munich. And um, one of the cellists was a pianist and she said, oh, Ronald, why don't you, let's sing some Schubert Lieder. And so she sat at the piano and I sang and she pointed out to me that the intensity of my vibrato when I sang was the same as the intensity of my vibrato on the cello. So I often wonder if there was some That's kind interesting. of- interesting, right. A certain, connection. a certain resonance there. Yeah. Um, Ron, do you remember learning Bach's uh, suite number one in uh, oh. G minor? Oh, yes. G major. G major. So it's What's the story me. there? Um, I, so as I said, I started when I was 14. I was in, uh, in, in, in the ninth grade. So I started in the summer before my ninth grade year. Um, my, uh, our orchestra teacher told us about this competition for the State Music uh, Teachers Association, organized by the State Music Teachers Association. And one of the pieces you had to play was with two, two movements of the box week. I bought the music, I started, you know, kind of trying to learn it. And then I realized that um, at the Cincinnati Public Library, you could actually, you could take out films. And so I got a film of Pablo Casals playing the first suite. He was outside in Prague in France, 
outside of a cathedral playing the first suite. Um, and in those days, you know, the, the, the orchestra director could get a, could, could um, order a, a film projector. And so I, I, you know, ran the film with Casals and basically I just tried to mimic Casals doing the, the suite. And uh, that's really how I learned it, quite frankly. Um, Dr. Crutcher, you you had uh, you, you met a uh, influential teacher, which um, resulted in some early uh, exposure to college campus. It, w was it that combination of things that were really put you on a different life trajectory? Yeah, it did. So it was you know when I went to perform in the competition, it was um, I, I lived in Cincinnati, Ohio. The competition was at Miami University of Ohio which is located in Oxford, Ohio, about 35 miles away. My father drove me and it just happened that the cello professor at Miami was in the audience. And afterwards she came over uh, to speak to me. She, she, she told me she, she congratulated me on my playing. And then she asked me how long I've been playing. And I said, eight months. And she said, oh my God, I can't believe you've only been playing eight months. And so she invited me to come to music camp at Miami. Now. I think in retrospect, you know, um, that she invited me so she could observe me to see just, you know, was it a one-time thing <laughs> that I played or, you know, was I really committed to practicing? So I went to the music camp and after the music camp was over, she told my parents that if they would, uh, they would get me to Oxford once a week, she would teach me free of charge. And that was, she, she basically was the first mentor outside of my family. My, my mother and my father were my, my, my earliest mentors. I had great parents who loved me unconditionally and were terrific, even though they, neither of them went to college, but they, they valued education and wanted their children, but there were three of us, to, uh, uh, to um, take advantage of, of everything the public educational system had to offer and wanted to ensure that we went on to college. And so at the age of 15, I started every Saturday morning, I got on the bus at 7.40, go up. Now, interestingly enough, Cincinnati is here and Oxford's over there, but the bus went from Cincinnati to Hamilton, Ohio, to Oxford. So the trip was a 90 minute trip, uh, 7.40 in the morning, I go there, I stay all day and come back home at 4.50 in the afternoon. And because I was there for the entire day, um, you know, she, I, I was able to roam the campus. She, she knew I was interested in architecture. So she introduced me to the uh, head of the architecture department who would allow me to come in and, and do drawings. And she introduced me to other professors. Um, and I, I really got to, to know the lay of the land of Miami University, you know, at the age of 15. It was, a, a, it was an amazing experience. She also, by the way, introduced me to a famous musical family, the Klemperer family. Uh, Otto Klemperer was one of the greatest conductors of the 20th century. And his cousin, George Klemperer, had immigrated from Germany to the United States and was living in Richmond, Indiana, which is located across the Indiana border, just about 15, 20 minutes from Oxford. Um, I went, she took me over one day she, with my parents, uh, uh, with my uh, parents' agreement. She took me to their home. I played for the Klemperer family. And I will say to you, I was 15 at that time. Erica Klemperer was 12 years old. And 
Erica Klemper and I have played in the trio together for almost 40 years. So we've wow. known each other since I was 15 and she was 12. That's a beautiful story. Was uh, this influential teacher, was that uh, Dr. Pottinger? Pottinger, yes. Um, you, you, said, you, you said something interesting in, uh, in your memoir that, um, that she and that, that experience that you just described really had a long-term influence on your leadership style. Mm -hmm. um, that she influenced you in, in a couple ways, uh, quiet, but exacting, disciplined, but broad-minded. Mm -hmm. are, are those things that you feel like you brought forward from her and that experience? Yes. Well, you know, what, what I would say is that what um, Liz Pottinger did was to help to, to take what I had already learned from my father. My father was not quiet, but he was very exacting. And he was very, very disciplined. And he made and he instilled the discipline in us. I'll be honest, I didn't like it. I didn't like him when I was little. And um, and 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 she, I think she could see some of that in me. Um, and she herself was kind of, you know, not a flashy person, not a particularly comely person to look at, but but wonderful eyes and very, very warm. Um, but she, you know, she took me from the very beginning. And uh, even though I had learned how to play, um, she taught me how to, how to approach the cello like an athlete. And, so, and, and in other words, I, paying attention to how my body interacted with the cello, that was very um, important to her. And then she also taught me how to be very exact and precise in, in the notation of the music, not in the interpretation, but in the notation of, 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 uh, of the music. And then to once you had, once you learned each exact note, the dynamics, to then let your imagination take over so that your interpretation could take what the, what the composer had done, had, had written, and then make it your own. Uh, and the other thing that she also helped me with was understanding that just because you're playing and you perceive that what you're hearing in your mind's ear is coming out of the F-holes, you can't make that assumption. You have to test it. And so the other thing that she would do would have me record what I was playing. Mm -hmm. So I could see that sometimes, even though in my mind, I thought I was taking more rubato at a place, when in reality, I really wasn't. All of that's been very helpful to me as a leader. All of the all, the, all those the, 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 those skills, but particularly you know the listening, um, the also you know, in in a, I, I, in my opinion as a leader, yes, you know the buck stops with you as particularly as the president of a university, but you don't always have to be front and center, and in meetings you don't also always have to be the only person who's talking. Sometimes it's good to kind of lay back and listen to what other, the, the perspectives that others have. And then every now and then, you know, add your own perspective or summarize, but you don't always have to be front and center. I, I'm, I'm curious, uh, I, I seem to talk to many um, musicians, music teachers, performing artists that become institutional leaders. I, I, I think um, they bring something special to the job. 
They have an appreciation for the discipline that it takes to create excellence. They, they seem to have an understanding of, of personalized learning, of demonstrated mastery. Any other things you think that you, you bring to the, yeah. your work, given your, your musical and your performing arts background? I, I would think that also, you know, um, I, because my, most of my musical experience has been in a chamber music group, either a quartet or a trio, that um, um, understanding the importance of collaboration um, is in, 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 and, and therefore in, in meaning, you know, that listening to other voices and, 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 and actually taking in what those other voices have to, to say in your, uh, before you make a final decision. In other words, not assuming that just because, you know, you are the leader that, uh, that you, you magically have the answer to every problem <laughs> or have the solution to every problem that you can, it's very helpful uh, to call on other people as well. I think um, the, the musical practice of, 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 you know, being very honest and open about criticism, it is learning how not to take criticism personally, but just, oh yeah, okay, that's a good observation. I, you know, I, you know, and 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 in a trio, you in a quartet, you have to be very honest and blunt, and so you you can't your feelings can't be heard when your colleague says, "Ron, that chord's not in tune. You're flat." To my G, we need to get we need let's let's work on that. Yeah. Uh, you, you you just have to okay. I guess I have to make some adjustment. Uh, that's been very helpful, and and um, uh, uh, and, and as a result. It means that on the flip side of that, it means as a leader, you're, you're, you're able to be vulnerable in, in ways that many people are not, many leaders are not. Um, and I find, I found in my experience, that's helpful to me. Yes, no, I appreciate that. Um, I, I've also learned from um, Leon Botstein, the president of Bard College, another gifted musician. Yes. I think he, he, like you, is a person that that can be exacting, um, but also very broad-minded. Uh, so I, I I appreciate the the sort of dichotomy that a a musician uh, can bring to the work. Yes, yes, yeah. I like my, Leon is terrific. I like I like him. I have a lot of respect for him. Um, we we love uh, loved your new book. Uh, it's called "I Had No Idea You Were Black: Navigating Race on the Road to Leadership." So, Ron, you, you have to tell us the story of the uh, meeting with the uh, oil exec in 1997 that resulted in the title of this book. Okay. So, um, in, in 1990... You're in Austin, right? I was in Austin. I was the head of the Butler School of Music. I was the first director of the Butler School of Music at the University of Texas in Austin. And I had uh, traveled down to um, Houston uh, to meet with uh, an oil executive who was chair of the board of a, of, a, of a foundation that provides uh, scholarships for violinists. Um, and I've been trying, I've been working for months to get this appointment. I walk into his office and we, sh we shook hands and literally as I was lowering myself to my seat, he looked at me and he said, I had no idea you were black. And so as I'm lowering myself to my seat, I'm thinking, okay. Let's see where this is going. <laughs> right. I mean, really, I think, 
What a crazy opener. It was a crazy. And, oh. and, and I think because I was in the midst of lowering myself to my seat, it gave me, you know, my father used to always say to us, my father was very loud, very, very brash and would tell you what he thought, whether you wanted to hear him or not. And he taught us not to be like him. And he would always say, you know, when someone throws, hurls something at you that, that, that takes you off your, your feet, don't just take a deep breath first before you respond. And so I was already accustomed to that. And so lo and behold, I'm sitting down and he says, perhaps you can help me. My wife and I have been going to the Aspen Music Festival for 30 years and we rarely see any black violinists. Why is that? And we had a, mag a wonderful conversation about, uh, not, not only about why that was, but also I was able to talk about a young black violinist who had come to Texas from the Cleveland Institute of Music. She had graduated from Cleveland. Her parents relocated from Alaska back home to San Antonio. She really didn't know what she wanted to do. And so she knew I was at Texas. So she came and, you know, she was in our master's program. She's in the Cleveland Orchestra now, by the way. She switched to viola. Um, so we had this great conversation. And you know, a few weeks later, I got the money I was looking for. <laughs> but I, I suspect um, it, it, it was true that to that point in your career, it was very frequent that you were one of uh, the only African-Americans involved in and uh, the symphony orchestras or the quartets in which you played. That's correct. No, I mean, it was a custom. I mean, I was, you know, when I was in the Cincinnati Symphony, I was the only black person in the, in the orchestra. I mean, I, you know, that was, that was pretty much, um, you know, I, by that time, I'd also lived in Germany, uh, where I had learned, uh, where, where really the German experience was amazing for me, where it was amazingly transformational because um, living in Germany, I learned how to be alone without being lonely. I learned how, um, what, how marvelous it was to be unencumbered by race, believe it or not. And many people, when I tell them that, well, Germany, what do you mean? What was really fascinating about Germany was that because I spoke the language fluently and because of other factors, I'm sure other personal factors. My German friends used to always say to me, we don't think of you of American. You're, you're more European than anything, anything else. Yeah. And uh, with, you know, with, the, uh, with uh, a few exceptions, there were a couple of exceptions, I found in Germany that um, suddenly I wasn't thinking about race as much as I had been in the United States, which was really, interesting to me and fascinating because it was a surprise. So was it shortly after 1997 and the conversation with the soil exec that you began to uh, imagine uh, that one day you might lead a university? Yes. And you began, so, to, you began yeah. to cultivate this picture of a university that changed lives. I, I love that picture, but when did you imagine that that might be possible? Well, you know, one of the other themes and one of the, the, the overriding themes in my book is the power of mentors and mentorship. And so it was one of my mentors, uh, a gentleman named Bryce Jordan, who had been president of Penn State University. He was the first musician to be president of a large university in this country. He was someone I had known about because everyone in the music profession knew the name Bryce Jordan. And when I went to UT Austin, 
he had retired from Penn State and moved back home to Texas and lived in Austin and was the chair of our Fine Arts Council at the University of Texas at Austin. He had observed me, so this was actually around 1996. I'd been there for two years. And he took me out to lunch one day and he basically said to me, it's obvious to me that you're gonna become a college president. Have you thought about the kind of college where you'd wanna become a president? Well, I panicked because I really hadn't thought about becoming a college president. And so I said to him, probably not a place as large as the University of Texas at Austin, um, which had 50,000 students at the time. I said, probably a small liberal arts college. And then it was after the luncheon, as I began to ponder, you know, why was it you gave him that response? I went to the bookstore and to the college, uh, you know, to the, the, the section where they had college books, college admission books. I found a book by Lauren Cloak called Colleges That Change Lives. And in the introductory section, there was a sentence that just got my attention and said, these are colleges that transform the lives of the students who attend them. And I thought, that's what I want. I want to be at a place where I know I can have an impact or, or where I know the institution and those of us in the institution are having an impact on, on changing or transforming the lives of the students who attend. Hey listeners, we'll get right back to Tom, but first wanted to tell you about a new Getting Smart report about what's next in learning. Over the last few months, the Getting Smart team has been working on identifying 20 invention opportunities in learning and development, and have pulled all of that together into a report that was made possible by the Walton Family Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. These opportunities have the possibility to completely shift what we talk about when we talk about schooling. Check out our recommendations, insights, and more at the link in the show notes or at gettingsmart.com slash invention opportunity. All right, let's get back to the show. About your leadership, Ron, you lay out these uh, beautiful, simple, uh, but so important uh, principles to know yourself, to be kind to others, to take care of yourself uh, mentally and, and physically. Maybe you could talk about those. They're they're simple, but so important in, uh, in a role like a college presidency. Well, you know, um, to be honest with you, you know, one of the, one of the privileges of, of writing this book and that last chapter was to think about, you know, what has influenced me, what has, what has contributed to my success and what kind of legacy I might leave. And as I've as I thought through, you know, what are the three things that have kind of guided me, those came up. I think, you know, to know yourself is just really being, knowing, uh, be, being in tune with your values, knowing what they are. Um, you know, I, I, I have always um, prided myself at being a, a, a very, you know, a, a, an ethical person because uh, I believe in, in, in and, and I'm a spiritual person as well. But you, you need, to know yourself means, you know, to, to really, um, really be aware and, and every, really on every day and every interaction where you are going to bend or not uh, with respect to, you know, your values um, and, and where you have to, to, you know, stand firm. I mean, I'll give you one example. I mean, uh, when I was at the University of Texas at Austin, I came to a place, I was the first outside head of the School of Music 
and I was the first head of the School of Music was the Department of Music until I came there. And as a result, there was lots of stuff that had been kind of just pushed under the rug. And, um, uh, and, and, and one of the practices was that there was a famous pianist who had lots of Chinese piano students who would go off and win awards. They, any award money they received, they gave to him. He would then in turn turn around and give it to the, to the University of Texas as a gift, which is illegal. But no one had interrupted this. And so um, I, I had to, I, I, did, I put it into it and I sent out a memo. He came in to see me in the fall. And I remember, I'll never forget it. Like, it's like it just happened. He sat down with me because he was very upset that I'd made this change, right? And he looked at me at one point. And he said, you know, Ron, I really, I really want to like you. And I looked him dead in his eyes and I said, you know what? I won't say his name. It's not really necessary for you to like me. Um, I want you to respect me, but you don't need to like me. <laughs> and what was interesting about the situation, so a few months later, one of my students played in a, uh, in a all faculty, which is a, a concert, a short half an hour concert, which determines whether you go from your sophomore to your junior year. And afterwards, he came up to me, oh, he played. I've never heard Bach play so beautifully. He was, he was very effusive, et cetera. But, you know, you, you have to know, and that's just one example. I could give you many examples. And that, and that I, have to, I have to give my father credit. That's what I get from my dad. He instilled that in me, even though, as I said, I didn't like him. Um, you know, and being kind to others, I get from my mother. My mother was someone everybody loved. Nobody, I don't, you know, and, and my mother-in-law, actually interesting, my mother-in-law just passed away. She was the same way. Um, and and what, what I've learned is that not only being kind to other people, but, and this I learned from my mother, also figuring out even difficult people you need to be kind to. And so what I've learned over years is when I am dealing with someone who's difficult, I don't see the difficult person. I try to see around all this stuff and see to the heart of who that person really is. Because most people are, are difficult for a reason. You know, they, they, I mean, they, I don't need to come go into armchair psychology, but there is a reason why they're difficult. So you need to see around all, all this stuff. And then you really have to, uh, for any kind of big leadership position, if you're not taking care of yourself, exercising, eating well, resting well, um, you're going to be, you know, you're, you're going to wear yourself out because there's always stuff coming at you from uh, every way. And then the other thing with respect to that stuff that I, that I say in the book that I feel very firmly about, and again, I think I get this as uh, from my music experience, you cannot take criticism personally. If you, it, that, will, that will take you down as a leader. You, take it, you have to figure out some way to deal with it uh, so that you don't take it, you know, personally, because uh, otherwise, and and you and you have to be you have to work hard and be intentional. Now, one of the ways I'm able to to keep all of those, all, all three of those, um, uh, in in my mind and in the forefront of my mind is I meditate every single day. My meditation practice helps me, and I, I say to every leader, you need to find some way of remaining centered, as the Quakers would say. It can be prayer, it can be meditation, it can be yoga, it can be running, it can be swimming. But that's the way I, I, I often tell my students, you remember the, old, it, the the bozo doll? You hit the bozo doll and always came back up. 
well, that's that's what centering is all about. You know, you need to find a way so when someone hits you and knocks you off your feet, you come right back up and you're right there. <laughs> I want to talk about uh, race and diversity. Um, as the president of uh, University of Richmond, uh, the last five years have, have been um, difficult and challenging um, in, in many respects, financially, um, culturally, uh, and and you've you've made really great strides to make your school more accessible, uh, more equitable. Um, so I want to dive into a, a couple of these things because they're prominent in in your book. Um, I I'd love to have you comment on this this quote that college is one of the best and perhaps last opportunities that many young people have to live in community. Uh, with those who come from worlds different than their own. Mm -hmm. Now that that's been interrupted in in 2020 with with COVID, but yes. But talk about that being in community uh, and being in a diverse community and being intentional about that. Absolutely. Well, first let me start by saying I feel very strongly that in particular residential colleges and universities, but you could say this for all colleges and universities, are real are really crucibles for helping our students learn how to live in a democratic society. And I would add to that a diverse democratic society. And so if you think about it, if you look at, I mean, there's some research from the Public Religion Research Institute that's, that from 2016 that found that 91% of all whites had only other whites as part of their network. 83% of blacks and uh, about 70 some percent of Hispanics. If you look, that's, a, that's, a, that's looking at race. You could do the same thing, you'll find, you know, 90% of Republicans have only other Republicans, et cetera. And so what that says to me is that our students coming to college these days are coming from segregated or polarized areas, if you will. And so when they come to college, a college like the University of Richmond, where about 30% of our students are students of color, 10% are international students, uh, 18, 17, 18% are low income students. So it's, it's, it's quite a diverse community. And, when, and so as a university, we have to help our students first gain the, the, the tools and, and the skills to learn how to interact with people in authentic, people who are different in authentic ways. Um, and then give them opportunities to practice it during their four years here. Because by the time we graduate, by the time a student graduates from the University of Richmond, I want that student to be very comfortable sitting down with someone who comes from a totally different political perspective and having a full-throated discussion argument, if you will, with that person. Um, but to do it in a, you know, to, to learn how to, to agree to disagree, if you will. I, you you uh, outlined three lessons in that uh, chapter. You said uh, it's number one. It's really important to acknowledge the uncomfortable history uh, of race in America, and, and that can lead um, to conversations that point the way forward. Number two, to respond to controversial uh, speech with more speech, and number three, to slow down. Mm -hmm. Talk about those last two. What what does that mean to respond with more speech, and then what, what does it mean to slow down? What, what, I, what I mean by responding with more speech is that a lot of time, you know, 
particularly in the last four or five years, uh, you know, there's been lots of talk in the press about the fact that um, colleges are not paying, you know, are not really respecting the First Amendment, um, First Amendment, sorry. And, and, and a lot of times what you hear from people is that, you know, free speech codes, free expression um, is antithetical to establishing and sustaining uh, uh, an inclusive community. And, and I would say just the, I would say just the opposite, that, that's, that you really need, if, if you're going to have a diverse community that's truly inclusive, you have to teach people how to, how to interact with, with each other across differences. Now, in doing that, and this is where I say, you know, other speech, we also have to realize that not, not everybody has equal access to the microphone. Uh, and you have to recognize that and, and uh, with the students, but then, but you can't allow them to simply stay there. Then we have to help our students find a way internally to, uh, to, 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 to uh, express themselves either in writing or in speech or uh, in protesting. Um, but, but I think we have to help them go get, be, get beyond, oh, you know, uh, I, I, I don't have the, I don't have the same power as that individual. Therefore, um, I, I can't speak. So, so, the, so that's the one thing. The slowdown piece really has to do with, um, you know, I think it's really giving people the benefit of the doubt. Young people these days, because of social media, sometimes will really jump to a conclusion right away. And so uh, if you come from a, if you're around someone who's very different from you, talks differently, acts differently, um, it, 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 it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to communicate with that individual. And so um, I think what we have to do is help students to learn how to listen actively, to take a deep breath before they respond immediately, and quite frankly, learn how to give people the benefit of the doubt. Because what we're trying to do is really establish cultures of trustworthiness. Because that's the only way you can really be honest and direct with people. If you, are, if you trust that that person, when you're interacting with him or her, is going to give you the benefit of the doubt. They're not going to judge you or cancel you out because you gave them the wrong response. On navigating diversity and uh, taking on really big problems, you said the purpose of higher education is to interrogate truth, to support arguments with facts and reason, and to uncover knowledge and create greater understanding. I really appreciate um, you calling that out. You know, it seems that we're living in a time where we we just don't have a shared reality anymore. We can't even agree on a set of uh, of facts. And you mentioned social media a minute ago. I think social media is part, partly to blame for us us living in in these divided uh, lives. But how how can higher ed help to create a um, a shared reality? <laughs> well, I think I mean I think some of the things I've talked about already. I I, I believe. Um, unfortunately, uh, what happens all too often in, in higher education 
because you know many of our scholars have become um, you know focused, overly focused, I think, on critical theory, you know, on deconstructing everything, um, and 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 as a result of that, um, I think that particularly around issue issues issues surrounding race and inclusion and, and belonging, too often they're looking at the situation as being e either or, as opposed to being both and, and being much more nuanced than, than they give, it, give the situation credit for. And so for instance, I'll give you one example. You know, One of the popular things that people talk about, and you, you heard me say in the book, I'm not a fan of it, microaggressions, right? Well, you know, in a sense, the very term microaggression is assuming ill will on the part of the other person, right? And and yet, oh, and and yet, that's you know, that's something that I students, a student a year ago came to me and said, "I want to talk to, to you about because my colleagues of our color have been experiencing a lot of experiencing a lot of microaggressions from our colleagues." And so in a sense, that's starting out from, a, from the perspective of assuming ill will. Another one that I talk about in the book is using the term marginalized. And I understand you know, from a scholarly perspective how that is used. But if you somehow implant in the minds of young people who what regard, you know, we're, we're first generation, whatever, that they're marginalized, that again kind of um, limits their, their thinking and, and, and their scope. Um, and, we and we really need to be, I, I think what the, the other thing I'm, that, I, that I would say here is that we need to find ways to have more nuanced and full-throated discussions about these issues on our college campuses, as opposed to, because, because what's happening to some extent is that the discussions sometimes tend to, to end up in, in being just as polarized as what we're seeing uh, outside of the academy. And I think that's a right. mistake. I really appreciate uh, the way you've advanced the equity agenda at the University of Richmond, including um, financially and educationally. You, you've, um, you, you've, you've made the place more accessible financially and you've worked hard at uh, extending high impact practices uh, across the campus. But maybe you could talk about your uh, agenda to make uh, Richmond mm -hmm. more accessible and uh, more, more successful academically. Well, first of all, I, can't, I cannot take credit for, the, for being need blind and providing 100% of demonstrated need. That was in place when I came there. What, and, and, the, and what was also in place at the, is that the university had started becoming much more diverse demographically. What I have focused on is taking the, the, that rich diversity that was made possible because we're, we're need blind and we provide 100% of demonstrated need. Um, taking that and then utilizing the rich, the, the, the rich representational diversity that we had to change the culture of the institution to ensure that everyone could thrive there. 
so that people feel, felt really inclusive, that felt as though they really belonged. And that's a journey. We're on that journey now. We're, we're making great progress toward the journey. The piece about the um, high impact practices uh, was, is important because we know from research that if a student takes, I think it's two or more high impact practices. So high impact practices would be, you know, uh, research with a professor, uh, study um, abroad, a first year seminar, uh, those kinds of things. An in internship. Internships, would it be another right. one? Um, that those kinds of interactions um, end up helping people, students stay in college and graduate. And students who take two or more end up getting, having higher, particularly students of color, by the way, and first generation students having higher grade point average. And what I wanted to ensure at the University of Richmond was that all of our students, regardless of their background, their economic background, their race, their ethnicity, that all of our students had equal access to those high impact practices. And so what we've done is put some, put some things in place to ensure that students have the kind of advising that would lead them to take those high impact practices. That's worked very, very well. Uh, and I'd also say one thing that we, we learned uh, when I first came to the University of Richmond, I asked for some disaggregating data because I was interested in seeing, you know, to what extent there was comparability uh, to um, with students of color and first generation or uh, low and low income students in particular to their uh, the taking uh, high in, their participation in high income in uh, practices. What we've discovered is that students of color are only half as likely to study abroad as other students. And, and then we, you know, and so I, we investigated why that was, interesting reasons, by the way, but that's not so important. What we've done now is that we've instituted a new program called Encompass in, the May, in May of every year. It's a two year, fully paid, a two year, two week <laughs> rather, fully paid study abroad experience with a professor that has been transformational. You know, sadly, because of COVID, We've uh, we've only had to we only had two opportunities to try this out, but I'm raising money now to endow that program. Dr. Ron Crutcher's the president of the University of Richmond, home of the spiders, and the author of a terrific new memoir is called "I Had No Idea You Were Black: Navigating Race on the Road to Leadership." Uh, Dr. Crutcher, congratulations on your book, and thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Tom. I appreciate it. Thanks to Dr. Crutcher for joining us on this week's episode. And for more on navigating race on the road to leadership, check out our conversation with Joe Truss about dismantling white supremacy culture on gettingsmart.com. We've got it linked in the show notes and on the blog. All right, that's it for today, listeners. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica signing off.